Second Kings chapter 11. Now King Josiah has been anointed as king over Israel. All the ceremonies are over. All the fanfare, well, at least quite a bit of it's over. And it's time for him to put to use the tools that are available to him. You know that's what has to happen when a president is inaugurated. We have all of the gatherings and the, the media sensation and all of that that takes place. But at some point after the inauguration, the man has to go into his office and start getting work done. And so Josiah is about to be at that point. Now considering that he's eight years old, at the time he begins his reign, he's going to need some guidance, isn't he? However, let me just say that. I believe that a bunch of eight-year-olds would do about as good a job right now as the current people we have as the 80-year-olds. So I don't uh, discount what a child might do, what benefit a child may have. One who actually looks like a child doesn't just act like one. And so he has, Josiah has Jehoiada, the high priest as his spiritual guide. And I believe every leader needs someone who is a spiritual guide. And that person needs to be spiritual first, not just someone with a reverend title or a, the title of some other religion, but somebody who knows the Bible, who's not afraid to hold the leader accountable in private and say, hey, sir, you... You know, you said this the other day, let me show you what the Bible says, and maybe you'll want to reconsider. Everyone needs someone like that, especially in a position of leadership. There, I don't remember who uh, came up with this quote. I'm sure a lot of people take credit for it. But it says that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's because of the nature of the flesh. We get power, and boy, we want to use it. We see that every day, and perhaps it's crept into your own life at times. I know it has uh, when we're parents, because our children will ask us something. They'll say, I'm the father in this house, and we're going to do it because I said. Well, that's, that is an immediate remedy to the problem, but long term, it's not a good strategy because at some point you have to explain to your children why it is that you demand things be a certain way. And so we have a boy king, and he's got a spiritual leader. And as every king, not only in the Bible, but now, as every king had, Josiah has access to what God said. He's got access to God's word. It's not a secret. And it's supposed to govern all matters of life, all matters for him, for his citizens, and there shouldn't be any gap in uh, what he does and what the Bible says. It ought to be in agreement. But there's one problem remaining for Josiah, and that's Athaliah. Her throne has now been taken. And she has nowhere to sit now. It kind of reminds me of a, a version of musical chairs where everybody gets up and walks around while the music's playing. And then when it stops, you sit down. And sometimes somebody doesn't have a chair to sit in. Well, Athaliah doesn't have a chair to sit in.
And uh, if she did, well, somebody pulled it out from under, and that would have been a boy would do something like that. Now let's look at verse 13. Now that we have our setting, if you just joined us, we're in 2 Kings chapter 11 and verse 13. And when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she came to the people into the temple of the Lord. During all of this celebration for the new king, Athaliah was under the assumption that she was still the ruler of Israel. She'd been there eight years. And she must have thought, who would have a celebration without inviting me? I'm the queen of Israel. And so she went to see what this noise was about, and the text says, she came to the people. Now, how unusual is that? For a leader to come to the people. The people usually clamor to go to the leader, to the ruler. They may say something like, I want an audience with the king or the queen. I want to see the man in charge. In this case, it was the woman in charge. And I don't believe she was lowering herself to go to the people. That doesn't seem to be her personality based upon what we studied I think she was panicked and even felt threatened hearing this great celebration and uh, what we'll read about in just a moment. Trumpets playing and all of that, the people proclaiming Josiah king. They had already clapped. They'd already given their approval for him. And if they were so bold as to have an an outlandish celebration like this in her eyes now, then they may very well be rising up against her. So I think that was probably on her mind at some point. It says, she came to the people, look in your text, into the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Now she certainly wasn't a church member there. Coming into the temple of the Lord was not something that I gather Athaliah ever did. To bring sacrifices for her own sin, to remember those ordinances, those times when the Jews were to bring offerings. I don't picture that she ever did that. I don't see the Bible speak of it one way or the other. But here she came into the temple of the Lord. And you know, the temple of the Lord was to be a holy place. This was a place where sacrifices and offerings were made and ordinances were were kept, and they were done in specific ways, according to the law of Moses, which he got according to the pattern showed to him in the mountain. And Athaliah would have never darkened the door of a temple, much less gone inside it, except on this occasion when she suddenly came into the temple of the Lord where the people were. And Athaliah reminds me of most people who suddenly come into the church today. And we're not talking about new Christians who suddenly start going to church. That's a wonderful thing. We want them to suddenly start coming and we don't want them to stop. But I'm talking about worldly-minded people like her whose lives have been turned upside down. So before this, Athaliah was on the throne for eight years, having her way. 
she saw no need to go into the temple to acknowledge God or any of that, as far as I can tell. But her life is turned upside down. She has been knocked off of her throne, and now she's going into the temple. The reason that worldly-minded people will suddenly start coming to church, in the most cases, is that maybe they're sick, or someone they know is sick. Or perhaps they've lost their jobs, or their homes, or their spouses. I remember the church I was a member of for many years back in Rowlett, and we had a couple who came, and they wanted so to have a child, and she couldn't. She had lupus. And we prayed fervently, and every Wednesday night we'd pray for them that if it was God's will that they would have a child, and they had a little girl. And they brought her to the church and dedicated her. And, of course, when they do that, they're actually dedicating themselves. The child doesn't know anything. But the parents are dedicating themselves to raise the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we had a wonderful time, and we never saw them again. And I thought, wow, if that was the only reason they came, and I don't know that it was or wasn't, but it sure was coincidental, what a shame. God gave you a child, and... Well, that ought to make you want to come and praise God and be encouraged by the people and encourage those who are seeking things from the Lord. But you know, and some come because they've lost their spouses, maybe a divorce or separation. And in all these cases, including Athaliah's, the Lord's house is where they should have been all along. It's not that they shouldn't have come, but they should have already been coming. It's where they needed to be. So when they come in suddenly, their reasons are often worldly. Now, it's been a while. It'll probably happen this afternoon. But it's been a while at this church since I've turned somebody away who came looking for gas money. You know what gas money is? Gas money means... I need a fix. I need a drink. That's what gas money is. It's not for gas. And people who come in here looking for gas money have obviously made some poor decisions in life, usually involving drugs or alcohol. And they want money, but they don't want Jesus. And so what they do is, like Athaliah, they come to the Lord's house, and they usually are back there wearing clothes that they've had on for about the last week without a bath, and they just look terrible. They, they look pitiful, and they're desperate. And so I offer to, of course, they want to speak to the pastor. You know who they really want to speak to? Brother Doug, because he's the treasurer. That's what I ought to tell him, right? You don't want to talk to the pastor. He's tighter than I am. But we've got a man who carries the bag. Yeah, well, I don't refer them to Brother Doug either. I teach him how to do a U-turn. When you do this, if you'll turn 180 and go back out that door, that's a U-turn. And I'm not ugly about it because I invite them to come in and listen to the Word of God. And guess how many people 
have taken me up on that since I've come here. That's right. And it's not three, it's zero, isn't it? Yeah. Zero. Not a one of them has said, you know what? That's what I need. And we're not giving a hungry person a stone and telling them to go away. We're telling them what you need is to come in here and God, hear God's word. And then if the conversation lasts past that, I'll tell them that and then we'll look at some way that you might be able to work. That also doesn't ring well in their ears, the word work. You might have to earn your money. And then by, the, by your hands, your feet, you will have the fruit of your own labors, and you can decide what to do with that. And it may very well buy you a tank of gas. That is not what they want to hear. Never. And so they, like Athaliah, come in for the wrong reason to the Lord's house. And we have others who've come over the years, not just here, but the other churches I've been to. It's, it's no different. It doesn't matter what church you go to. People who come in and immediately begin causing trouble one way or the other, trying to subvert the teaching of God's Word, trying to split people apart, get people on their side to talk bad about this person or that person, and cause a division in the church, a schism, as the Apostle Paul said, that we shouldn't have any of that. So I tell them we don't give, give out money. They're not here for God's word in the first place. And they want the money that we've given to the Lord for his work. Now, you know, when you give your money to the Lord for his work, you're giving it to this local church. And this local church has, over the years, decided what we're going to give our money to, or the Lord's money to, and what we're not. And so we have to pay the bills, keep the lights on, and maintain the church and all of that. And we, uh, you all, have been so gracious in what you've paid the pastor and in myself and, and others. But we have a great deal of responsibility to do kingdom work with that money. And so when that money that's destined for kingdom work is taken from and given to a cause that's not kingdom work, then we're not good stewards of that money. So that's our budget here is kingdom work. And if it doesn't support kingdom work, then we're not interested in giving the Lord's money to it. So what a person wants when they come in and ask for money, which is going to probably buy drugs or alcohol or pay a gambling debt or whatever they may have, they're not saying, hey, I have an idea for that money. I'm going to do God's kingdom work with it. That's not what they're here for. So this down here is not just a collection. That's the Lord's money. And we're the stewards. The, the money doesn't mysteriously vaporize up into heaven. We're the stewards of it. And God said in his word, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Athaliah wasn't there for the things of the Lord. Now let's look at verse 14. And when she looked, behold, the king stood by a pillar as the manner was. And the princes and the trumpeters by the king. And all the people of the land rejoiced and blew with trumpets. And Athaliah rent her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. 
It says that the king stood by a pillar. Now, this was some type of custom for kings as they spoke. And commentators who've tried to uh, figure out what that pillar was, was it one that Solomon built? Was it this particular place in the eastern gate? They have all their opinions, but all we have here is that it was a pillar. And we read in the Bible about pillars more than you might think. Both in the construction of the tabernacle and in the temple that was built in Solomon's day, which was a more permanent fixture even though it was destroyed and ransacked too. We read about in the book of Judges how Samson, after having given away his hair, he let his hair be cut. And he lost his physical strength and the Philistines put his eyes out and put him doing what mules do, turning that, that mill. And in the house of Dagon, which was supported by pillars that held it up so it wouldn't fall down, Samson, after the Philistines had ridiculed him and scoffed him and mocked him and his God, he said, just steady me between two pillars. And what did he do? He pushed those pillars apart and it made that entire structure crumble on top of him and everybody else, killed them all. And the house of Dagon came crumbling down. So you see pillars in the Bible more than you might think. There is also a description of a pillar found in Israel's journey in the wilderness. And it was a pillar of fire. And it was how God led them by night. He led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And with that pillar of fire, which is still a, a source of strength, it's a, it tells us of support. With that pillar of fire, nothing could harm them. They were protected. They were kept warm. They were able to see, and that pillar both led them, as the Bible says, and it separated them from their enemies. God was their support in the form of a pillar of fire. For Josiah to stand by a pillar reminds us that his reign is only as good as the pillar by which he stands. So the question for Josiah, as with any of the other kings and any ruler today, is will Josiah have God be his pillar or will it be the unsure foundation of this world? Will it be the unsure pillar like it was in the temple of Dagon? That was an unsure pillar, wasn't it? Oh, I'm sure it was strong and well built, but all it took was for those two pillars to come down and everything it supported came down with it. And you know the church is a pillar. Did you know that? The church is a pillar. Not just any church is a pillar. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Now this is another reason I've got to get a computer. Is when I tried to copy and paste from... 
my normal source of copying and pasting scripture and put it on my works document, it shut the whole thing down and I had to start over again. So I've had to type every word of every scripture, which is not a problem, but it just prolongs the time uh, that I'm typing. And anyway, I put that to the side again. Y'all know I'm going to get a new computer, don't you? But listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of ground and or pillar and ground of truth. Which church is a pillar? Is it the Baptist? Is it the fundamental independent Baptist? Is it the fundamental independent King James only 1611 Baptist? The Methodist? No, it's not any of them. It's the church of the living God. It's the church of the living God, which is the born again of all ages, Old and New Testament who have put their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, both those who looked forward to that being accomplished, those who saw it accomplished in the flesh, those who believed on it after it was accomplished by faith. All. That's the church of the living God, and that's the pillar and ground of truth. Now follow this to its conclusion here. This is so good. The Apostle Paul also wrote about a rock with a capital R in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. Now, what do we know about a rock? A rock is like a pillar, isn't it? It's a strong, sure foundation. Jesus said that the one who built his house upon the sand was a foolish man, but the one who built his house upon a rock was a wise man. Now, the rock found in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, here is speaking, where it's speaking about the children of Israel. Listen to what that verse says. For they, that's the children of Israel in the wilderness, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. When Jesus said his church was built upon a rock, he was teaching us, that his church was built upon a strong, sure foundation. And when that pillar of fire led Israel through the wilderness, that pillar was a strong, sure foundation in a different way. That fire wasn't going to go out, was it? God's fire doesn't go out. God wasn't going to quit leading them. They may have quit following him, but he wasn't going to quit leading them. And in fact, it, or he, I should say, that pillar, would never fail to lead them or protect them. Now let's apply this truth about the pillar and the rock to our position in Christ. So we can enjoy another of the promises that Jesus made to us. Now, you know, as we've studied, both in John chapter 10 and then in Colossians chapter 3, which we memorized as a church, or many of us did a few years ago, that 
our position as Christians, spiritually, is that we are in Christ. Now, physically, we are in this sinful body. And when it's gone one day, what does that do to our position in Christ? Not a thing. We are in Christ. So remember that as we learn this truth. If you're a Christian, you're spiritually in Christ, and in fact, he is in you, just like he told his disciples in John chapter 10, and also in John chapter 14. He made that very clear to us. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12 is Jesus' message to the church at Philadelphia, as recorded by the Apostle John. And in that message to the church of Philadelphia, listen to what he says. And by the way, if he's speaking to them, he's speaking to us. He said, him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Isn't that something? I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. How about that? We're going to be pillars in the temple of our God. And why is that? Is it because we're such strong Christians, maybe better than others? Not at all. In fact, when you became a Christian, or at least just before, you realized that the pillars of Dagon that you've been depending on, as strong and mighty as they look in this world, were going to fail. Do you realize that? You might not have thought of it that way at the time. But you knew by faith that those pillars would crumble at the hand of the Lord. They don't stand a chance. And the world tries to tell us, before we're saved, it tries to tell the lost person, you're not really lost. What are you really lost from? You could become pillars in the temple of your God without the gospel. Just do your best. Just be stronger than the next guy. But because we're in Christ, who's the rock, because we are the church, we're not just in the church here, we are the church that was built upon the rock, and that is the pillar and ground of truth, then we too shall be pillars in the temple of our God. We're in Christ. We are the church. It's another way of saying, another way of teaching, that we will be conformed to the image of Christ, who is the rock, who is the head of the church of which we are members. He's the head of the body of which we are members. Now looking at this change, this king who's now standing by a pillar while the queen is tearing her clothes and panicked, desperate, crying treason, treason, Remember this, in every election, there are people who are pleased with the results, and there are people who are not pleased. I remember running for student council when I was in seventh grade. Well, I lost. I never did win any of that. You know why? Because I wasn't very popular with all the people in school. I had my little group, football players and boys, and we acted like boys, and that's why I wasn't very popular. And so this girl beat me and I thought well I don't like that I lost so every election even in school but particularly 
in elections that matter, and that didn't matter. Who was the city, the student council treasurer or president? That, none of that mattered. But it does matter who the leaders of our country are, the leaders of our state, the representatives and the senators we have who make laws that affect us and whom we send to represent us, and they don't always do that. But there are people around Josiah in this text who rejoiced. But Athaliah cried treason, treason. So she was one of those who was not pleased with the results of the election as maybe she saw it. Josiah represented good. Athaliah represented evil. Treason. She cried treason. You know what treason was? Trying to kill off the royal seed. That's treason. Because God had ordained not that she would be queen, she never had permission to be queen. She wasn't in the running for queen. She was a write-in, and she wrote herself in. Voted for herself and got the majority vote by killing and intimidating. Now, we've already had our 2022 elections, and the results are in the hands of the vote counters. Don't ever think they're in the hands of the voters. Stalin actually was correct about that. It doesn't matter who votes. It matters who counts the votes. That's a shame, isn't it? But that's the case. And with some of the results, we have been pleased, or when we find out, we will be pleased. So the fact that you can't count all the votes on election night begs me to question the new math that's being taught in schools. It must not be very good, as we could add pretty quickly with a pencil and paper before we were allowed to use calculators. And now they've got vote tabulating machines and allegedly can't count all the votes in one day. We know why. It has nothing to do with inability. But what we vote for, and this is where it's really difficult, and I know Christians struggle with this because I know I do, trying to figure out who's, as closest, who's closest to the Bible. Which of these candidates is closest to the Bible? And so here's the Bible. And here's the most evil, the ones who say, well, we kill babies if we want to. Basically, anything that God's word says, they're against it. That's this group over here. And the ones I usually end up voting for are about right here or here. But none of them are here. Not a one of them. And so it's hard to vote for somebody who I know is not right here. It's not in line with the Bible 100%. So I have to vote for somebody who seems to be about 75% there. And sometimes I have some guilt over that. But what's the alternative? Well, I'm not going to vote for evil. And for me not to cast a vote at all and say, well, there, I just, uh, you know what that's like? That's giving them half a game. If you keep up with baseball or football stats and who's in the lead, if you don't play and somebody else wins, they're ahead of half a game. Well, I don't want to do that either. And that's the way it's going to be till Jesus comes. You know that? We're going to have that problem until Jesus comes. And so we try to vote for people whose platforms and values are as close to the Bible as possible, knowing it's an imperfect system. And that is a tall task because many who run for office, probably most, 
will say one thing to get elected and then do another when they take office. I remember when a senator of mine who ran for office in the U.S. Congressional District where I live, he said he would not vote for John Boehner for Speaker of the House. I'm I'm sorry, uh, he was a representative for Speaker of the House. He said he wouldn't do it. And I thought, okay, well, good. So I voted for him, and you know what he did? He voted for John Boehner for Speaker of the House. And every time he runs, I try to primary him out if somebody's running against him. And then he went on to become national security director and all of that. But see, just something that simple. So I ask every person who votes, find the one who is standing as close to the pillar in the Lord's temple in their values and in their ideas as possible. And whether that person's popular with others or not, your vote may be counted by the election judges, but it will be judged by the eternal judge. If you vote for evil, your vote may be counted by the election judge. And you may say, well, our country, we have anonymous voting. Okay, that's fine. Not with God. Nothing's anonymous. And he's the one who judges the intents and thoughts of your heart when you vote anyway. May God help us never to vote for evil. Now let's look back in our text. It says, the king stood by a pillar as the manner was. Let's look at that phrase, as the manner was. That's even another consideration here. The phrase, as the manner was, means there was a custom, a habit associated with this act. And in the case of a person, the phrase, as the manner was, tells us a lot about him or her. It means that the action being described was more than just a one-time event. It was more than something done for recognition or political motivation. I'll read you a passage about the Apostle Paul, and I want you to listen for that phrase. It's found in Acts chapter 17. I'll read verses 1 and 2, so you have a context. Acts 17, verses 1 and 2. And this is speaking of the apostles. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. I think we know enough about the Apostle Paul in this church to know he was not some overnight sensation. He wasn't some new talent on the block. He was a seasoned apostle. And not only in Thessalonica, but after being poorly treated in Thessalonica, as the rest of that passage tells you, he did it again in Berea. He went into the synagogue of the Jews. Do you know why? Because that's what his manner was. He had done it in Iconium, Berea, other places as well. It was his manner. It was his habit. And the circumstances didn't matter to him. He didn't say, if I go into one more synagogue and they run me out of there on a rail, I'm not doing that again. That's not what he did. He was definitely not the popular choice 
in any of those places. So he didn't do it because the people said, oh, that's good, Paul, that was good. No, they hissed at him. Those Jews didn't like hearing that their religion was wrong. And yet, it was still his manner in every city he went to, to find out where the Jews gathered and to try to persuade them of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for them. One of the things that drives me crazy is when these foul-mouthed, immoral politicians or actors or professional athletes, whoever they are, try to use religion to bring attention to themselves. And they'll quote normally misuse scripture. They'll say, oh, the reason I was able to score four touchdowns in the game is because I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. Well, that's not at all what that passage teaches. Not at all. It tells me they don't know what they don't know much about the Bible. If they would be poor and abased and ill thought of and not popular and still keep doing what they're doing, then they might understand what the Apostle Paul was talking about, where he learned both how to be abased and how to be exalted, rich and poor. They'll use the Scriptures as though it is their manner, and that's where the rub is. It's not their manner. For if it was their manner, then they wouldn't misuse the Scriptures. And a lot of other things would be different about them. Yet nothing about their lives, at least in the public view, and boy, social media captures much that they probably wish wasn't captured. It's not just women without makeup. If these professional athletes and actors and politicians really had as their manner Adherence to God's word, practicing God's word, then we probably wouldn't even see most of them on television. You think about a politician. A politician, and I'll speak to Christian voters here, a politician appeals to Christian voters by going to their churches and speaking. You know, a lot of pastors, especially the really big churches, will say, so this Sunday morning, we're going to have such and such candidate for office speak in our pulpit. And I think that's a big mistake. I don't, I don't like, we're not going to do it here. I can tell you, Brother Fulton and I are of the same mind. We had precious little time with you, as we've said before, and we'll say again. And while this scripture, while this pulpit is being occupied and somebody's saying something, it's going to be about God's word. It's not going to be about political office that I'm running for and I need your vote and, you know, we're going to do all these great things. And by the way, I love Jesus too. We don't need that. If that person who is running for office thinks that having Christians on their side means that God is on their side, They've got another thing coming. If God was on their side, they wouldn't have to appeal to any particular group of people. But they come in, they speak in your church, and think, all right, I got the Christian voters. That's what they're there for. And that's the wrong reason to be here. Either come to teach or be taught, one of the two. Come to teach or be taught. Come to bless or be blessed. When a professional 
football player scores a touchdown and points at the sky and kneels down in some kind of religious gesture, maybe he even appears to pray in the end zone. I always wonder, is that your manner? Is that what you do anytime something happens in your life that you think is good? Do you get on your knee and pray to the Lord and point to the sky? Or do you just do it in front of the millions of people watching and all those folks in the stand? I don't know. I don't know their hearts. Now here's another one. Some Christian music singers have made millions of dollars selling their albums to Christian listeners. And some of those had some wonderful words to them. And we even sing some of those songs from time to time. And yet, many of those singers have no trouble at all changing right back over to rock music or Christian or country music or whatever it is they came from, if in some cases, if the album sales go down in Christian music. And so it turns out for that singer or those singers, those musicians, that it wasn't really their manner to sing only to worship and glorify God and forsake those worldly, sensual lyrics that are in popular music. The text said, as the manner was, Josiah stood by the pillar as the manner was. And if standing by the pillar here is standing by the word of God, then let this always be his manner, our manner. Let it be the manner that we demand of our leaders, if we can find one who does that. You know, our country would be in a lot better shape and heading in the right direction, in fact, if that were the case. But we're not, and we're not. Now the text says, "...in the princes and the trumpeters by the king." Now the princes would be the leaders under the king, the, the heads over the various tribes, and so forth. Now wouldn't that be wonderful? They're rejoicing with God's people at this king who's been anointed, who is standing by a pillar as his manner was. That'd be wonderful if not only the ruler stood by the pillar of God's word, but the princes, the, the leaders under him, stood by the leader who stood by God's word. The prospect of having a leader who obeys God's word is pretty far-fetched. It's something that I pray for, and I hope you do too. But the reality is this. Now, God can put anywhere, anybody anywhere he wants. He can pull a man who loves his word right up through the ranks and put him in a position of leadership. But just as often, God has allowed a country to circle the drain on its own accord by its own choices because of what we put up with, what we allow to happen, what we elect, who we elect, the rules and the laws that we're willing to be governed by. And the reality is that to find a man who would stand by the pillar of God's word is so far-fetched nowadays because that guy would get shot out of the saddle early on in the process. He'd go to some sort of community gathering and speak, and some liberal would get up and say, what do you think about abortion? He'd say, well, I'm not for it. 
Well, what about, no. What about in this, no. And he might even ask the question, ma'am, sir, at what point does a baby lose his right to live? Because that's really the question. Not at what point does a woman lose her right to choose, but at what point does a baby have to suffer the death penalty? What, what would cause us to kill a baby? Yeah, well, I don't like that. And somebody like that would be shot out of the saddle pretty quickly in most cases. So what they have to do to, to work their way up the food chain in politics is kind of heads their bets. Well, now, now in that case, I'm, I, mean, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but over here, and so their standards and their values seem to change in order to please those who are listening to them. But imagine having not only a leader who stands by God's word, but having princes as these, the leaders under them, who also stand by God's word. What if they believed what he believed and they obeyed it like we hope he obeys it? Well, I'll tell you what would happen, just like it did on this occasion. Look back in the text there in verse 14. It said in the middle of the verse, and all of the people of the land rejoiced. All of the people in the land rejoiced. Now, the people rejoiced for one of two reasons in this setting. One would be the most evident, and that is that Athaliah was a cruel ruler. And now she has been deposed, dethroned, and she's about to suffer worse. So who wouldn't rejoice at that? The cruel leader is dead. And now we have a king and a priest. We have a new start. So that alone might cause them to rejoice. But the second reason, and remember Israel represents to us the church, God's people, the church in the wilderness. And God's people will always rejoice in righteous rule. We won't speak against righteous, a righteous ruler who rules righteously. That's all good stuff. And it ought to be our fervent prayer as well that God give us leaders who desire to honor him and not listen to the drumbeat of this world. Now let's look at the word trumpeters because they played a sound of outward joy. They expressed with their instruments what the people felt on the inside. Those trumpet notes were physical extensions of the joy and the celebration that the people had in their hearts. The glad people, that is, not Athaliah and not her followers. And that's what our music ought to be, is an audible extension of the joy of the Lord that we have in our hearts. That's why, if you say, Brother Andy, what's your favorite rock song? None of them. Hate them all. The songs I want to sing and the ones I want to hear glorify the Lord. They declare the joy of the Lord, particularly if I'm going to sing them. And I don't want to sing anything that brings reproach to the Lord. Now, when I sing, You Are My Sunshine, to my granddaughter, that does not bring reproach to the Lord, and it's not a hymn. Athaliah rent her clothes. As we begin to close, she rent her clothes.
Rent is to tear. Can you imagine this queen with all of that royal apparel on and now she's starting to rip her clothes? That's what people did when they were in anguish and despair in the Bible, grieving over a loved one or a loved one's death and so on. And the news that caused the good people to rejoice caused Athaliah to be in great despair. That's the way it happens, isn't it? You read about an event, any event, it doesn't matter, especially if it has a political connotation to it. Go to a liberal website, one you know is liberal. I'll tell you one, yahoonews.com. Try that one. Read about that event, and then go over to a conservative website and read about the same event. It's like they're two different places, two different events. One says, you know, the so-and-so's a just, they, they have hate, they're full of hate. And the other one says, thank God for the victory of righteousness. And you wonder, why would one group rejoice and one group be in despair as it were, renting their clothes. And next week when we come back, we're going to look at this cry that Athaliah made, treason, treason, and learn a little bit more about what that means. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word instructs us that we may live righteously. And, Lord, it teaches us about evil. And so many of the things we read are, uh, Lord, they just break our hearts to see that they were done and they're still being done. But as you recount those things for us in your word, you teach us what not to do as well as what to do. And so, Father, I pray that you would take those lessons from this message and apply them to us and help us to live by them. In Jesus' name, amen.